Coming to you live. Live. And podcasting around the globe. You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast. Guaranteed to tickle your real estate loving ear holes. And now, here's your host, world-renowned TV heartthrob and investor extraordinaire, Ken Corsini. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with the Best Deal Ever Show. On today's episode, I am joined by Frank Rolf. How you doing, Frank? Doing great. Thanks, Ken. Hey, so I, I checked you out online. You are the go-to guy for mobile home park investing. Is that right? Uh, we like to think that, yes. <laughs> and where are you located? I am located in uh, St. Genevieve, Missouri. An hour south of St. Louis. And is that where you do most of your investing or are you guys buying all over the place? No, we, we are, we're in 24 different states. So we, in fact, have nothing in St. Genevieve. Our closest is uh, St. Louis. Okay. Well, give us a quick, quick background. How did you get into mobile home park investing? Sure. Uh, basically, I had uh, got out of Stanford a year early, wanted to go to business school. Back then, to do a business school application, you would start a business and then write about that on your essay. So I started uh, building billboards, never went back to business school, kept doing it for 14 years, ultimately sold that off to a public company, needed to reinvent myself. So I reinvented myself as a mobile home park person by buying my first park in Glenhaven back in 96. And since then, uh, myself and my partner, Dave Reynolds, we merged together in 2010. We're now the fifth largest owners of mobile home parks in the US. So we have about 20,000 lots in about 24 states. 20,000 lots in how many different parks is that? Uh, about 200 parks. Holy moly. What, what sort of staff do you guys have to have to be able to manage that? Just curious. We have, we have about 400 people on the team. Uh, the majority of those are in the field. Each property has a manager. And then uh, we have maintenance men, rehab crews. We have uh, people in all kinds of different forms of functions in the field. And then back in the office, we have an accounting team, marketing team, we even have a legal team. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a varied, varied group. Most of our folks that are in the field. Gotcha. I would even think with 200 properties, you'd have to have a pretty big central home base, like you said, yeah. for all those accounting needs and legal, right. I guess, legal, I guess as well. If you really think about it, we're running a city of 60,000 people basically. Wow. So the only instead of being one, finite area it's spread out in a very large geographic area so yeah. what a juggernaut to manage so are you guys still in acquisition mode are you constantly in acquisition mode yes we're, we're always in acquisition mode we're always seemingly selling and buying uh so that has been a common theme since it got into the business mm -hmm. and, uh, so yes we're, we're always out there looking for new stuff and when you say selling because obviously it's a, it's a buy and hold kind of uh business what are you selling well, it's not always buy and hold. In other words, we, we get a steady stream of offers on the stuff we have. Mm -hmm. Follow the uh, Warren Buffett rule that if you don't sell it, you just bought it at the same price. Yeah. So we'll an offer for more than we would buy, pay for it, we sell it. That makes sense. Now, what is, is different people have different strategies for mobile home park investing. What's your primary strategy when you go into a park? Well, the, our primary strategy obviously is to make money. Uh, we're, we're trying to do a, a three point spread between interest rate and cap rate. It's mm -hmm. a 20% cash on cash return. So to make uh, our best shots of that happening, we, we focus on parks that have uh, basically five, well, four core items, infrastructure, density, uh, the correct location, and then also the, age, the correct age of homes. Hmm. And 
uh, that, that coupled with economics makes us either want to buy it or not. Gotcha. And when you go in, do you typically, do you actually own all of the trailers or, you know, some people go in there and keep the land, sell the trailer or owner finance the trailers and just lease the lots. Yeah. The, the, the business is classically built on just owning the land. Mm -hmm. The land is real property income. That's what gets capped <clears throat> and used in appraisals and the homes are personal property. So we try and focus just on the land if we can. Okay. So typically when you would acquire a park, you're not trying to own all the, all the individual no, trailers. Aggressively selling all the homes off. You are. And what does that look like? You typically do like owner financing on those and, or. Well, you know, since I brought the safe act, we can't owner finance any longer. So what we can do oh. is cash or rent. <clears throat> There's a third variant called rent credit where you uh, rent, give, but give people a pathway to ownership by giving them credits for every month they pay. I got you. Um, another option is you can have a group like 21st Mortgage, which is a division of Berkshire Hathaway. They can step in and actually do the financing as, a, as an actual mortgage company. Okay. Interesting. Well, so you've been at this for a while. <laughs> you own a ton of parks and, and land sure. and tons of people working for you. I'm sure there's one deal in particular that stands out as your best deal ever. Yeah, and it's my best deal ever, not only because of the deal itself, but the path that put me on it. That's my first part, Glenhaven. Gotcha. Yep. So let's talk about it. Where, where, where did you source, how and where did you source this? Uh, it was sourced very accidentally. I was calling around to people after I sold the billboard company to see what they did. I was trying to get, uh, I was on a fact-finding tour of what business was worth investing in. Mm -hmm. so I called people in all different facets because I had built 300 billboards on 300 different businesses. Hmm. Uh, one that I remembered vividly was uh, my building of two billboards on Glenhaven Mobile Home Park in Dallas. So I called the owner, Ron, and said, hey, Ron, I sold the billboard company, and I'm curious how your business works. And he said, well, uh, why not just find out for yourself? I'll sell it to you right now on the phone. Give me uh, $400,000 with $10,000 down. I'll carry $390,000 for 30 years, and you can just jump right in it right now. And so I, knowing where this was heading, said, well, so how much are you losing a month, Ron? <laughs> yeah, right. Do something on the phone. And he said, I'm losing 2000 a month. And that's, that's what got me in. So I thought, well, you know, all I have at risk is 10,000 bucks. Hurdle one, can I solve the negative 2000 a month? So I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll close on it and see if I can solve the 2000 is step one. If I can't give it back to Rod. If I can, I'll go on to the next step. So that, that's how I got in. Interesting. So you obviously had a, a level of confidence you were going to be able to solve his cash flow problem. Uh, I had a level of confidence that I had a shot at it. I didn't know what his problem was, but I knew that the park was very, very poorly managed. And so I thought that perhaps he was missing something that I could figure out. Yeah. So, so what did that look like for you? You put the $10,000 down and then just jumped right in and started doing just some yep. fact finding. Right. Found a title company, structured the deal, put the 10000 down, got a note, did a traditional closing, didn't do all the right pieces, didn't do a phase one environmental, didn't do a survey, none of the things a normal person would do because I knew nothing <laughs> about real estate. Right. And uh, so then I bought the stupid thing and started to figure out the $2,000 and I figured it out almost immediately in a quick review of his financials. He had a uh, cable agreement where he was providing cable free to all residents, which was costing about 2000 a month, yet he was only half occupied. So he was paying a thousand of it for lots where there were no humans. And then on the other thousand, I noticed they all had little satellite dishes or most had satellite dishes. <clears throat> so no one was even using the cable. 
Hmm. So I went to the cable company and said, when does this contract end? And they said, oh, it's already ended. It's a month to month. So I said, let's cancel it. They said, you can't cancel it. You'll turn off all your customers' cable. I said, I'm cool with that. I don't think they're using you anyway. So I sent a letter out to the half of the population of the park that actually was there saying we're dropping the cable. I had almost no pushback. They got a call from like two people, told them, hey, just do like your neighbors, get Dish or Direct TV. And that was the end of it. And, and that one move, I had solved the, the negative. That's crazy. Well, just curious. So how big was the park? How many, how many trailers? Uh, it was 83 lots. Okay. It had probably about 40 occupied. So, well, that, that in and of itself, there was an opportunity to increase occupancy. Well, there were two, two big things to be improved on. One was occupancy, which could be doubled, but the rents were insanely low because Ron had never kept up with Dallas rents. So when I bought Glenhaven, the rents were about 175 to 195 a month. And at that time, the market rents were closer to about 395 to 425. Now, I did not know that when I bought it because I knew nothing about mobile home parks. That was a little extra. Plus, I found as I progressed. But initially, I thought it was just solving the 2,000-month negative and sitting on it and slowly raising rents and slowly raising occupancy. I had no idea I could do stuff so fast with it. Wow. So, so when you figured that out, how quickly did you change rents and what did that look like? Well, well there, there was another thing that happened, which, which was just pure luck. Uh, so I buy Gladhaven. I office out there for a year, a little single wide, learn the business. And my mother calls me up and said, did you read in the paper about the mobile home park that's closing down near downtown? I said, no. So she sent me the clipping. I called the name of the park. It was being redeveloped to build like a Home Depot. So I drove down to the park and said, hey, I've got 43 lots vacant and you're shutting down. Can I have 43 residents? And he said, man, can you ever? Because I have to pay the cost to move these people out. That was part of my agreement with the city of Dallas to get the zoning to build the Home Depot. So I got to find them all a home. So if you want 43, you got it. And I'll even pay to move them to your park. So oh my goodness. I'm going around trying to match home sizes to lot sizes because I didn't have a lot of large lots. So most of my lots are mostly smaller in Glenhaven. I'm trying to find the, you know, the two bedroom, one baths, not the three bedroom, two baths. So I did take a few of those and introducing people to the idea of Glenhaven. I made a little flyer. And next thing you know, I started moving them in. And it overnight changed the entire uh, demographics and the whole vision of Glenhaven. So I went prior to this from mostly carnival workers and all kinds of misfits <laughs> Glenhaven because it was so unbelievably cheap. Now I had imported in a huge number of families. And as soon as I brought all these families in who, who had good jobs and drove nice cars with nice people, my misfits all collectively came to me and said, it's either them or us. We are not going to live at a Glenhaven that's this kind of sanitized family environment. So I said, well, goodbye to you guys. And that started the exodus of the 40 that I had. So now they started pouring out of the park. But that was okay because they, as they abandoned their homes, I went in and renovated them and sold them to friends and family of the group that had just come in. So it literally was the catalyst to the entire park changing over completely, everything about it. It went from being a, a horrible land of the misfits to a nice, safe, clean, you know, uh, place for people of all 
forums and descriptions. They weren't all family. So some were seniors. We had a bit of everything. But now they could actually be proud to live there, and it made, made my life much easier. That's amazing that the, the misfits were the ones that didn't want the clean families rather than yeah. the other way around. If you saw the misfits, the first thing you noticed when you went in Gledhaven was in the back corner, they'd build a amateur wrestling facility uh, out of plywood and uh, particle board. Oh they had gosh. a wrestling ring and then these little makeshift concession stands. And it was kind of like a keep Austin weird kind of theme. They wanted Gledhaven to be this literally land of the misfits. I, I literally had carnival workers with carny tattoos on their knuckles. In, in what in and that and the problem was this is what Ron had created by having basically no rules and no management is if you couldn't live anywhere else, you could live at Glenhaven, no credit screening, no criminal screening, just come on over and, and enjoy our, our wrestling ring. So yeah, <laughs> they, wrestling they, that's, ring. that's the environment that they desired to keep. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. So, so that was the best thing that could happen to you is these people wanting to leave and you getting fresh people in there. And I guess none of them owned their trailers then? It was all basically clean well, out your many, stuff? Many of them did. Many of them, these trailers were originally owned by Ron or okay. still owned by Ron. I had rentals in Glenhaven too. Yeah, had RVs. The RVs just turned on the engine or connected up to a pickup truck and drove off. But the people in the homes, it cost about 5000 to move a home. So not a single one moved their homes. Actually, I take that back. One guy tried to move his home with a pickup truck. Didn't work. But yes, the homes ended up sitting there. The ones that the park already owned, we, I simply went in and renovated. The others I took through abandonment and then renovated. Okay, gotcha. So what did that look like in terms of raising rents then? As these people, you brought new people in, those people left. What did you raise them to? Well, the park that the other people were at already was near market rent. So their rents were already like in the 300s. Okay. Jumped immediately upon their arrival to the new market rent I had determined, which I can't recall now. I think I went up to like 300 or 295 or something. Okay. Well, I, they were at the new rent. Then as I redid these homes, I put those back in at the new rent. Okay. So I was able to move the rents up very quickly. And so did all this happen in the first year? Uh, no, this happened the, the first year, the first six to seven months was nothing but abject misery of me trying to build a business around the misfits. Yeah. Uh, towards about month seven or eight is when all this went down. Okay. And we renewed promise that actually there was an industry here and it wasn't just all about babysitting misfits. Gotcha. So, and that over the course of the, the first two years, basically move the misfits out, move the new people in and raise right. rents. On the end of year two, certainly it, the, everything had changed. Yeah. So it was no longer, uh, you know, me going down to Gladhaven wondering what stupid thing would go on today, but it was me going down to Gladhaven uh, to kind of be amazed at, at what had been created from such a horrible mess earlier. Unbelievable. So what did that cash flow look like for you? I'm curious. You put in, uh, it was $400,000 purchase, put in 10 grand, and then by year, end of year two, what did that look like? Okay, so what happened was I bought it for 410,000 down, but then I had to start feeding it with capital improvements. And okay. rent homes. I also at one point lost all my natural gas, which was probably my most terrifying moment in, in business history because in the billboard business things are very uh never that stressful because no one really needs a billboard it's not critical i had issues with billboards building them i might hit a water line or 
you know, crane might break, but it was nothing big. Right. What happened at Glenhaven was I get a call from my on-site manager, Stephanie, that we've lost all gas. And it turned out we'd lost it because the gas company turned us off because we had leaks we did not know. They wouldn't turn us back on until we could pressure test. We failed the pressure test, which means I had all my residents now, all these families and people, they had no heat, no hot water, and no way to cook in the middle of winter, and it was like 20 degrees out. And I did not know what to do. And I thought, well, you know what? After everything I've done, I'm going to give it back to Ron. So I called up Ron and said, Ron, I can't do this anymore because I thought I was at the end of the movie, and now you've hit me with this mess. And he said, you know what? I already knew this would happen. I have to be honest with you. I knew this was going to happen. So I said, well, Ron, well, what's your plan? He goes, well, I don't give it back to me. I don't want it back. He said, here's what you do. Call up Northwest Propane in Dallas and tell them you need to start bringing in the propane tanks, yep. which I did. We then had a, had a cliffhanger scene because the city tried to stop them from unloading the tanks, saying it was illegal in Dallas to have propane if you have natural gas on the street. So we had that fight, that legal challenge. It blew over in two days. The city backed down because apparently there was a pending rule in state legislature about uh, them having a monopoly over propane, and they didn't want to have this as an example. So they backed down and said, okay, you can put the tanks in. So I had to put the tanks in. That, that cost me, as I recall, $50,000, $60,000. So the bottom line is I had poured not just my 10 down originally, but in reformatting Glenhaven, I had poured about another 100. Now, Ron took part of that off the note because the natural gas was something that he should have told me in diligence and didn't, and he didn't want to get sued for fraud. Yep. So we negotiated that down. But the bottom line is I ended up with about $500,000 in Glenhaven total. Okay, gotcha. And so what did that end up looking like once kind of everything had been renovated, everything sort of settled down to end of year two, all the new people, I guess you're probably at hundred percent occupancy. Uh, here's how the math worked. In other words, I had 83 units at about $300. I had about 25,000 a month of revenue, about 300,000 annual revenue. And because I bought Gledhaven so cheaply, the expense ratio in a park typically runs about 30 to 40%. So I was netting off the 300, about 180 before my note payment, but my note payment was insanely low because it was 390,000 amortized on 30 years. So the bottom line is I was netting about 100,000 a year off of Gledhaven, uh, and there really wasn't any threat to that cash flow because my customers loved it, the homes never leave, and I still had, I had miles to go in raising the rent. So, uh, that, that's, that's why, what made it a good deal. Cause you could literally just live off Glenhaven. Uh, wow. and because Glenhaven was now doing so well, I started buying more parks under, under thinking I had found the, the, you know, the, the ultimate business model. I would just repeat the Glenhaven story over and over and over. <laughs> and so that's, that's how I got into the business basically. How interesting. Well, I'm sure as you found out, they probably don't all go that smoothly. Absolutely correct. There were, there were good ones that were not as good. There were, yeah. there were some that were theoretically better and some that were worse. Yeah. Well, so I, th this is a phenomenal story. And for you being the first one right out of the gates, obviously that inspired you to do more. You know, there's people that are watching this that would love to get into this space. What advice would you give them after all these years of experience? Okay. Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to learn what you're doing. And when I say learn what you're doing, like any hobby, 
you, you're never going to be any good until you're smart enough to know what is an opportunity for what is not an opportunity. So you can't just jump into it, <clears throat> excuse me, and say, well, gee, I'm going to be the trailer park king. Uh, where's, a, where's a trailer park to buy? There's more mechanics to it than that. Right. You gotta find stuff with what, what, what I would call uh, institutionally boned properties. So in other words, that you can get a loan on that people will buy in the future. You got to have a permit. You got to have utilities that work. You got to have all kinds of infrastructure. There's density issues. A lot of parks were built back in the 50s. And, and all, all parks were built mostly between the 50s and the 70s. But there was a period in the early 50s when they were building these things under the assumption that the biggest mobile home out there would be 30 feet. That's what it was back then, and eight feet wide. And today, the lots are so small, you can't put mobile homes on them. So density is an issue. Hmm. Uh, location is key. There's two locations that work. Glenhaven is one, kind of that gritty urban metro location, the same thing that fuels millennials to want to live downtown. Mm-hmm. And big schools too. All Americans like it. And the other is the, the nice suburb, the suburb that has the nice school system, nice shops, because people who live in mobile home parks are no different than people who live in stick-built homes. They all want the same stuff. They want mm-hmm. to have the good schools, no crime, the nice restaurant down the street. So those, you want those two key locations. You want to have a park that is not all new homes nor all old homes. You want to have a mixture of homes mm-hmm. because you want homes that are all paid for. So you want homes that are pre-1990 or early 1990s or older to be the bulk of what you got, maybe 70 or 80%. And then you want homes that might have mortgages to be the other amount. You don't want to have a situation where you have homes with lots of mortgages because that's going to harm their ability to pay lot rent. Mm -hmm. Um, And you add those things together with the economics and and then you have something. But it's not, I mean, I, I drive by mobile home parks all the time along the highway that no one should touch. Hmm. I just by some yesterday driving from our parks in Kansas City to St. Louis. Uh, there's some some old large mobile home parks along Interstate 70 between the two. There's no market there. There's nothing going on. So hmm. all parks are created equal. You want to stick with the ones you can make money with. Yeah, yeah. What an amazing career to have started with such a cool first park and then to do as many as you have and build the empire you have. Very inspiring. Frank, thanks so much for coming on today. It was fantastic. You bet. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Hey, friends, let's talk for just a minute about the market we're in right now. It's tough, right? Deals are hard to come by. The last thing you need is trouble funding a deal once you've done the hard work to source it. Trust me, I get it. I've been at this for 16 years and financing deals is often a huge pain in the rear. So I decided to solve the problem. I launched Red Capital Lending for real estate investors like me and probably like you. The days of paying 12% interest are over. And if it's taking more than a week for your lender to close, you're using the wrong lender. We've built Red Capital Lending for the sole purpose of providing the lowest cost of investment capital possible. I'm talking about interest rates in the sevens. With the highest level of customer service and with the fastest turnarounds, our goal is to provide funding within five days. If you've got a deal coming up and you're ready to save money and avoid the typical hassles associated with most lenders, take a minute and just submit your deal at redcapitallending.com. We'd love to work with you and show you just how easy it can be to fund your next project. Again, redcapitallending.com. Okay, so let's get back to the show, except in this segment, we're going to talk about the deals that didn't go so well. Hope you enjoy.
All right, I'm here with Frank Rolfe, the king of the mobile home park investing, and I want to hear about your worst deal ever. Sure. Uh, worst deal ever was a park I bought uh, southwest of Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay. It, uh, it was a park that should have never been bought. <clears throat> Didn't know what I was doing. And uh, I'll tell you, tell you the quick story. So a broker brought this deal to me. Okay. I had yeah. never owned anything in Shreveport before. He said, I got this great deal. It's about a hundred lots. Uh, it's got a pool. It's got a clubhouse. It's got a tennis court. And uh, it's even got little dressing rooms and bathrooms at the pool. This thing's like a country club. And I'll sell it to you super duper cheap. Uh, and super duper cheap, as I recall, was about a half a million bucks, four to 500,000 bucks. Wow. Which that's about four or 5,000 a lot. Yeah. And not including the stick built home. So I thought, wow, I can own all this stuff for four, four or 5,000 a pad. It was very vacant. It only had about, oh gosh, 30% occupancy, let's say. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll turn this thing around. The problem was I got too excited with the idea of owning this, this big, massive thing with a pool and a clubhouse without ever thinking, why was it so vacant or doing any due diligence at all? In fact, my due diligence was I drove down to look at it and on the way down, it was in a ritzy neighborhood. And I thought, wow, I mean, I've got these big 8,000 square foot McMansions on the way towards it. This has to be a super winter because I'd live in this park. Well, but I didn't do any market testing. I did no test ad. Didn't do any. This is in my early career. Didn't really know what diligence even meant. So I just made the snap decision. Yes, this is a deal worth buying. I should buy this. And it was a complete catastrophe. There was, there was no market there at all. So what would happen is I would run ads in the paper. I would take little flyers to dealers, anything I could do. And the phone would just never ring. I mean, never ring. Really? So now, since it would never ring, I became terrified how will I collect money? Because now in a weak position, if someone won't pay me rent, I don't want to evict them. I can't put anyone back in. Yeah. So suddenly the entire business model just collapsed on me. And I realized very rapidly, oh my gosh, I've got to sell this thing because I am going to get killed. So I run ads on mobile home park store, tell all the different brokers, I got this thing for sale. And lo and behold, someone who's even dumber than I was, <laughs> right. They did the same thing. They went through and looked it over and said, wow, it's got a pool and a clubhouse. And so they said, I'll take it. But yet I couldn't get any bank financing, neither could they. So this, the only way this would work is I would have to carry the paper on it. Oh, and wow. I was terrified of carrying the paper on something I knew was never going to work. So I thought, oh my gosh, I'm just going to get it back. Yeah. So he gave me every month. It was like pulling teeth to get the payment because obviously they had the same issues I had. They couldn't get the rent. And then the, the nightmare was never going to end. I was never going to get out of the deal. So I thought, now what do I do? Well, let me see if I can sell the note. Right. On the internet. Right. Right. Good advertise first lien note, you know, great deal. And thank heavens I found someone who was even dumber than I was on the note to buy the note and, and, and get me out of my shackles of misery. I mean, the park haunted me. For years, it was a never-ending nightmare of doom. Oh my gosh! Uh, big lesson learned was you got to know what you're doing before you buy something, right? Yeah. And uh, and you know, don't jump into deals that are not winning deals because you could be stuck with them for a lifetime. Yeah. 
right? It was very eye-opening. I'd never had that issue before in the billboard business. If you build a billboard and it didn't work out, you just tear it down and move it to a different location. Yeah. But I found in real estate, if you buy a bad deal, it kind of becomes your your nightmare that's chained to your neck like an albatross and you can never, ever disgorge it from you. But I finally ultimately did. Now the weird ending was the person that bought it from me after their their nightmare, right? They can't get rid of it. It's like it's like Mario Kart, the little cloud with the thunderstorm <laughs> hang above your car. They strike oil on it. How weird is this? So what? people drilling oil near the property with this new thing that had just come out called fracking and horizontal drilling hits mm-hmm. spindle top next door. And they go to the lady and say, hey, I want to buy out your mineral rights and I'll pay you monthly as much as the, it, it, she was getting paid as much monthly <clears throat> that she needed to cover the complete mortgage plus like five grand a month. Right? Oh my gosh. She's thinking the deal's incredibly great, right? So now she decides who needs a mobile home park. She lets the park go to nearly zero occupancy because she effectively walks the park just to keep the minerals. But what she not, what no one's thinking here is the poor guy carrying the note. So when the oil ended because ultimately it died, the fracking ended, she had no units. She gave it back to the lender who was the guy that bought the note. And he just got a note on a park with nobody in it. So, it, and I don't know where it is today. It probably still goes on as a trouble deal that haunts everyone who touches it. It's like a disease. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. You know, it's one of those things, whenever you buy a property to turn it around, there's a reason it's not performing on the front end. And if you don't correctly diagnose why it's not performing, you could be stuck with that exact same bad yeah, asset. Exactly, exactly correct. <laughs> that's too funny. Well, man, I, pre- I hate it. I hate it for you. Actually, I'm glad that you got out. I know how that feels to get out of that. I've been in plenty of bad deals where the second you're done with it, it's like the best feeling in the world, but the shackles are off your neck. So it's exactly correct. Congrats for getting out from under it. But man, I appreciate you sharing with us today, Frank. That was good. Hey, Deal Farm listeners. If you haven't heard, I just recently released a book through Bigger Pockets Publishing called Profit Like the Pros. If you dig the Best Deal Ever podcasts, you will definitely want to get your hands on this book. I take 25 stories from some of the top investors in the country and distill them down into 25 separate chapters that will not only entertain you, but educate and inspire you in all different facets of real estate investing. From wholesaling and flipping to self-storage, multifamily and commercial, we get into the details of short sales, subject twos, and even land flipping. Whether you're a brand new investor or you have years of experience under your belt, I promise you this book will engage you. If you would, take a minute, go to Amazon and order this book, Profit Like the Pros. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks so much, folks, and I will see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.